Why do the nations plan rebellion? And why do people make their useless plots? Their kings revolt. Their rulers plot together against the Lord and against the king that he chose. So let us free ourselves from our rule, they say. Let us throw off their control. From his throne in heaven, the Lord laughs and mocks their feeble plans. He then warns them in anger and he terrifies them with his fury. On Zion, my sacred hill, he says, I have installed my king. And I will announce, says the king, what the Lord has declared. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask, and I will give you all the nations. The whole earth will be yours. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them in pieces like a clay pot. Now listen to this warning, you kings. Learn this lesson, you rulers of the world. Serve the Lord with fear. Tremble and bow down to him. Or else his anger will be quickly aroused and you will suddenly die. Happy are all of those who go to him for protection. Amen. George Frederick Handel was born, <clears throat> like every other man, I suppose, on the 23rd of February, 1685, at Halle in the Duchy of Magdeburg in what, has be, what was to become Germany. And this was just a month before another famous German composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, who was born at Eisenach, 100 miles to the west. I spent ages poring over a map of, it, of Germany to find those places. Handel's music teacher was a man called Friedrich Zachau. And he was the church organist at the parish church in Halle. Handel moved to Hamburg in 1703 and then to Italy in 1708 to study opera. And he returned to Hamburg in 1710 and became the Kapellmeister or the music master, in the court of George, the prince-elector of Hanover. And then in 1712, he was recruited by Britain's Queen Anne, and he moved to London. However, Queen Anne died two years later, in 1714. And after the turmoil of about the succession to the English crown, because they were desperately trying to avoid Catholic monarchs, George, the elector of Hanover, 
was invited to become King George I of England. And so his old boss became his new boss. And 37 years later, after a successful career, writing a range of opera and church music, not to mention music for the king, Handel produced his famous Messiah, which he wrote in an astonishing 24 days. A friend, Charles Jennings, gave him the words, all taken from scripture, and asked him to put the words to music. The first performance was a charity event in Dublin on the 13th of April, 1742. And it raised the remarkable sum for the time of £400. That's the equivalent to £47,000 in modern money. This sum was divided between two hospitals and a debtor's charity. And the debtor's charity was able to secure the release of no less than 127 debtors from jail. And although Messiah was roundly condemned by much of the church at the time, it has since become a fixture on the calendar of many musical institutions. And Psalm 2 figures strongly in Messiah, providing the words for two arias, one of which we listened to earlier, and a choral piece, all immediately preceding the Hallelujah Chorus. The psalm doesn't immediately suggest itself as very Christian. It's quite fierce in its phraseology and rather contemptible of its enemies. This has been put down in the first instance to its early pedigree. And although it is not specifically stated, all commentators of every age assume that it is a psalm of David. And even in modern academic circles, there are very few who try to deny its Davidic origins. Right. In about 1000 BC, the newly acclaimed King David was first occupied the rocky outcrop. We're waiting for a rocky outcrop here. There it is. <laughs> yes. In the hills of Judea that had been a defensive hill fort built by the Jebusites. And he renamed the hill fort as Jerusalem. And it's the area that was bound in red on that map. Well, it's an aerial photograph, really. It's today's um, old city. David then purchased the flat area behind the hill fort, 
which included the threshing floor of a Jebusite called Arona. And it became the site for both his palace and later the temple. And Arona was paid 50 shekels of silver for the site, according to the writer of 1 Kings, or 600 shekels of gold, according to the writer of 1 Chronicles, which was written somewhat later. It was quite remarkable at that time that David just didn't commandeer the site for himself. The temple had remained the portable structure that had been used since the days of the desert wanderings, some 400 years before. But David had planned a much grander temple. Solomon built this temple to David's design on the site of Arona's threshing floor in about 950 B.C. And it remained in use continuously for just on just over 350 years before it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 592 BC. Ezra the priest organized the rebuilding of the temple in about 514 BC and it survived in that form until 134 BC when it was desecrated by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Ooh, how I do love saying that name. And at that time, in an action that had precipitated the Maccabean uprising, and after Antiochus was killed in battle against the Parthians, Jonathan Maccabeus restored the temple to the Ro- he restored the temple and reconsecrated it in an event that was celebrated to this day by the Jewish Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. The temple was later rebuilt to a much grander design in 29 BC by King Herod the Great before it was destroyed, finally, by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD, following a Jewish rebellion. Yes. Soon after this disaster, a pagan temple to the Roman god Jupiter was built on the site, until such practices fell out of favour when Constantine embraced Christianity in the 4th century. There was then an attempt to have the Jewish temple restored, but it failed to materialise, and more than two more centuries were to elapse before the first Islamic mosque was built on the site in 691 AD. The dome of this mosque collapsed in 1015. That's 1015 AD, not 1015 in the morning. And it was rebuilt. And then for about 85 years during the Crusades, 
the mosque became a Christian church and was administered by Augustinian monks. Saladin won Jerusalem back for Islam and restored the mosque to its original purpose in 1187. And the Dome of the Rock has survived to this day, although the gold on the dome has only was added in 1962. Many, but not all Jews, still hold on to the hope that the temple can be rebuilt on its original site, which also implies the demolition of the mosque. Psalm 2 is widely believed to have been written in the first instance for the coronation of King David, although it may have been revised, possibly several times, for his for the coronation of his successors. And the psalm begins with a question, and it's a question that we have all asked at some time in our lives, why? Why is everybody so angry? Why is everybody so intolerant? Why do people fail to see the blatantly obvious? Why do people plot and scheme to undermine the world we live in? Why are the peasants revolting? I've heard every one of those questions recently, as various people have reflected on the Brexit debate here in Britain, but also from the Americans following Donald Trump's election as president. And even the events of this week have drawn me back to the key question, why do people make their useless plots? Under King Saul, Israel had been little more than a rustic society. It consisted mostly of peasant farmers and were bound together only by a somewhat tenuous loyalty to Yahweh. They had moved in 400 years before and had established themselves in this mountainous country under first Joshua and then under a casual leadership of judges. And as the enemies around them became bigger and stronger, they went on to clamour for a king in the face of Samuel's opposition and, apparently, God's too. The first choice of king was Saul. He began with great promise, but as time progressed, he developed into a tyrant. The first of many. Saul, like most tyrants, became increasingly suspicious of those around him. He became more and more paranoid. He worried that there were those who were plotting his downfall. And as time went on, his paranoia and the accompanying irrational behaviour had led to some of his subjects, most notably David, 
becoming the reality that he'd been in fear of all along. And their presence confirmed his fears. The young David first came to Saul's attention when he emerged out of the backwater of Bethlehem to offer to fight the Philistine Goliath, a fight which, against all the odds, he won. And David became an instant hero. And soon after, he became friends with Jonathan, Saul's son, and also married Michal, Saul's daughter. And Saul's paranoia helped the feud develop into something just short of a civil war. And it ended when Saul, Jonathan and two others of his sons were killed in the battle of Mount Gilboa against the Philistines. And David then became king because of his position of son-in-law to King Saul, but also in fulfilment of an anointing by Samuel sometime earlier. And after a battle with the Jebusites, David took over the site of Jerusalem and established his court there in preference to Saul's palace at Gibeah, four miles away. His kingship was affirmed by a universal acclamation following the murder of Ishbosheth, Saul's son and David's only surviving rival. The Philistines were soon subdued, but over the succeeding centuries, the enemies became bigger and bigger. Up until 1989, we had an enemy that we viewed with deep suspicion. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Do you remember them? The USSR. In that year, an event took place that was to reshape our world. It's frequently described as the fall of communism, but that in some ways is misleading. It was actually the fall of the USSR and the Soviet bloc, which was, strictly speaking, the fall of a political alliance. But it was always a weak alliance because it was only ever held together by guns and tanks. The individual countries of the alliance, however, began to see an opportunity to free themselves from the Soviet yoke. Beginning in Poland, as early as 1982, the quest for freedom spread like wildfire. And over the next seven years, first in East Germany, and then in all of the countries of the Warsaw Pact, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, and others, finally in 1989, the USSR itself collapsed and Mikhail Gorbachev, its president, suddenly found himself without a country to give, govern. We in the West breathed a sigh of relief 
believing, wrongly as it happened, that all our enemies were vanquished. And we even spoke of a dividend, a peace dividend. And since then, a new sense of threat has grown up, not from outside, but rather from within. The combined effects of Al-Qaeda, the 2008 economic crash, and the more recent Brexit referendum have all shown that we can so easily bring about our own destruction by the simple expedient of encouraging our own selfishness and setting up one sector of society against another. Why do people make their useless plots? From his heaven, his throne in heaven, the Lord laughs and mocks their feeble plans. The idea of God laughing at our puny attempts at independence comes as a bit of a shock. The idea of God laughing at all can be a difficult concept for some of us. But the cry of freedom is a very potent one in most societies. In 1789, the people of France rose up against the king, King Louis XVI. He and his court had become oblivious to the poverty and the suffering of their people. The Republican cry was, and excuse my French, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, ou la mort, which translates as liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. You thought it was a reference to Lynn, didn't you? <laughs> yes. A well-intended call for the freeing from serfdom quickly disintegrated into the bloodbath that the word revolution has since come to signify. The great horror went on for a decade and was only brought to an end when a new strong leader emerged, Napoleon Bonaparte. And he was not slow to declare himself as emperor. Since then, there have been numerous revolutions all around the world, particularly common in Africa and South America, and almost without exception. They have succeeded only in replacing one tyrant with another. And all in the quest for freedom from oppression. When this psalm was written, it was written to declare David as king. Who would deliver Israel from tyranny? He was God's man. He was anointed by Samuel, the revered prophet from an earlier generation. He had killed Goliath 
and he had been oppressed by Saul. But David, however, didn't remain spotlessly clean. He had his affair with Bathsheba, which led to him having Uriah the Hittite, her husband, murdered. And he faced a rebellion from his own son, Absalom. As time went by, David's successors increasingly abused their powers. A situation that went from bad to worse. And slowly the yearning for a king who was righteous overtook the reality of the kings who arose. And although each one started with the best of intentions, eventually the idea of a righteous king had become one with the idea of a messiah. And the messianic reputation of Psalm 2 was sealed. Which is why it was included in Messiah by Charles Jennings. There always was a thread through the nation of Israel who saw the king as God appointed. It's good for the king if the people see the king as appointed by God. It means that they're less likely to rebel against his decisions. And it was this that was indicated by an anointing with oil. And this ritual has been perpetuated in our own coronation services. Not that there's many here who can remember the last one. It's also had links with the consecration of the priests, who also received an anointing with oil. Now, the king was God's man, and you threatened him at your own peril. David was, to all accounts, very mindful of this during the years when he was outlawed by Saul. The biblical accounts give several references where he both refused to take action against Saul, even when he had ample opportunity to do so, but also he warned others not to do so as well. But David's example was not always heeded. His third son, Absalom, was born to a foreign wife, Marka a daughter of King Talmai, who was the king of Geshur. Where's Geshur, you think? Geshur has been identified as the Golan Heights area of modern Syria. So it wasn't a long, long way away, really. Absalom's sister, Tamar, was the victim of a rape. And Absalom set about avenging that rape by murdering the perpetrator, a man called Amnon. And following this murder, he fled to the court of his grandfather, King Talmai, and remained exiled there for some years. 
when he returned, he hatched a plot to unseat David and replace him on Israel's throne. However, it didn't go well for him. During the rebellion, he got his head caught in the branch of a tree and was killed there by Joab, one of David's commanders. And although David had benefited from his death, he was heartbroken. David was never told that Joab had killed Absalom, as Joab had quite explicitly disobeyed David's orders in order to settle a personal score of his own. After David had died, Solomon inherited his throne and appears to have had a prosperous and trouble-free reign. However, no sooner had he died than his son Rehoboam faced a rebellion from many in the military. Jeroboam had been the military commander in Solomon's army, and he led an action that resulted in the division of Israel into two separate countries. Samaria, consisting of the ten tribal areas to the north, in in blue, and Judah, with the territory of Benjamin in the south, in yellow. The two books of Kings spelt out the history of the fortunes of these two countries fairly evenly, and the conduct of the kings, and indeed their countrymen, were shown to be morally mixed. But outright rebellion was rare, and most of the criticism that the various kings received were from the mouths of the prophets, as one and another spoke truth to power at strategic times and places for the next 300 years. However, the vision was always for a new king, a heavenly king, a messiah, one who would come and deliver his people from their oppression. The final section of the psalm was to complete the story, and it comprises of the warnings to the kings. They needed to recognise that they are also subject to the judgment of God. You see, God has a special place in his heart for the poor, the needy, the destitute and the sick and dying. Supremely, it is the rulers and authorities who carry the responsibility to represent God to their people. And it's a nice beguiling thought to believe that you are representing God to the people. But accompanying this lovely thought is a huge responsibility. The king was responsible to ensure that the poorest in society received a just consideration that didn't disadvantage them just because they lacked money. Back in the 10th century BC, such kings were as rare as diamonds. 
Being king was seen as the same as being a tyrant. Yes. Many kings seem to have tried to out-tyrant one another. Who could be the most beastly to their people? (laughs) In fact, this was precisely what Rehoboam tried to do, which sparked off Jeroboam's rebellion in the 9th century BC. However, across the succeeding 3,000 years, it has slowly become normal for governments to assume some responsibility for national poverty. In our modern world, it's the tyrant king that has almost disappeared. And those that have survived have almost all had to divest of themselves at least some of their political power in favour of some kind of elected body. This hasn't been the end of tyranny, but it has been the end of autocratic kings, such as was universal in David's day. Much of our modern society is now governed, for all its shortcomings, by governments mostly elected by the people, or at least has the appearance of being elected by the people. The result of this is that the responsibility for those in poverty that used to sit in the hands of kings now sits in the hands of the governments that the people or perhaps some of the people, have voted into power. All government, regardless of their political nature, whether from the left or from the right, must heed the warnings of this psalm. God is a political authority in this world. He will hold to account those who fail to treat their subjects with kindness and fairness. The call of King Jesus is to affirm that God has a special place in his heart for the poor and the needy. He will not stand idly by when they are oppressed or abused for no better reason than that they have suffered some calamity or misfortune that prevents them from putting food on their own table. When King Jesus was crucified, he made it abundantly clear that he was not going to play the power game, that leaders had universally followed up to that point, And in his resurrection, he revealed that the powerful were actually much less powerful than they thought they were. St. Paul put it like this in his letter to the Corinthians, where he says that they were the powers that are losing their power. The words of Psalm 2 speak to our personal and our national life. Not only in the UK, but to all countries around the world. 
It reminds the leaders of Ben that they lead only with the consent of God as well as the consent of the people who follow them. It reminds them that the supreme leader is Jesus who modelled true leadership with a cross and a resurrection. And it reminds us who follow and perhaps lead from more lowly positions that we too have a responsibility to speak truth to power, especially in these days when so many seem completely unable to determine just what the truth really is. One of the Proverbs says this, Righteousness makes a nation great. Sin is a disgrace to any nation. Amen.